Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello. This is Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, January 10th. We'll start with the local weather today. Today will be a windy day. We'll have heavy rain early in the morning. Highs will be 52 degrees. Tonight will be breezy in the evening, but otherwise clear. Lows will be 36 degrees. Tomorrow, Thursday, January 11th, will be a sunny day with some patchy clouds. Highs will be 44 degrees and lows 32 degrees. Friday will be a mostly sunny day and breezy in the afternoon. Highs will be 43 degrees, lows 34 degrees. Saturday will be another very windy day with heavy showers in the morning. Highs will be 53 degrees and lows 30 degrees. And finally on Sunday, it will be a mostly sunny day, but it will be windy and cool colder, excuse me, highs will be 35 degrees, lows 26 degrees. And next, in other local news, we'll go to the lottery. The numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, January 9th, at the midday drawing, were 1, 5, 6, 7. I'll repeat that, 1, 5, 6, 7. Seven. The evening drawing for yesterday was zero three four three. Once again, zero three four three. The mass cash number for yesterday, Tuesday, January ninth, was five twenty twenty four twenty eight and thirty. The Mega Millions numbers for yesterday, 12, 15, 32, 33, 53, and 24. And finally, the Lucky for Life numbers for yesterday, January 9th, were 5, 29, 30, 39, 40, with a lucky ball of 17. If you were one of the ones that played, we wish you the best of luck. And now we'll go to our front page local story. The title is, New Tax Sends $5.5 Million to Cape and Islands for Transportation. Fair Share Amendment implements a 4% surtax on income above $1 million. By Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Yarmouth Town Administrator Robert Rittenauer says the state could come up with a better formula for distributing money, but he has no complaints about the nearly half a million dollars his town will get to spend on transportation infrastructure. Cape and Islands towns will get $5.5 million from $100 million 
in overall state transportation infrastructure money. The funding has been secured through the so-called Fair Share Amendment, a measure Massachusetts voters approved in 2022, which implements a 4% surtax on income above $1 million annually dedicated to public services such as infrastructure and education. Rittenauer said Yarmouth, which is slated to receive about $458,000, has a capital improvement plan for road and sidewalk maintenance that has been difficult to find money for. The fair share money will go a long way toward funding various projects, he said. And it'll free up some money as well to address other projects, like we have a lot of stormwater projects that require improvement, he said. We certainly appreciate the additional resources because it's very difficult to fund so many projects. Funding distribution formula questioned. Rittenauer said the money will surely benefit Cape communities, but the way the funding is distributed doesn't necessarily favor small rural communities such as Yarmouth and most other Cape towns. We're used to being disadvantaged by most of the state formulas down here on the Cape, Rittenauer said. The only thing that they could do is assess the impact of the seasonal population. We have a lot of pressure on our local infrastructure because so many people come here in the summer. Communities will be able to use the funding to improve, build, or maintain transportation infrastructure throughout their respective towns and is being distributed based on a formula that factors in a municipality's road mileage, population, and employment. Transportation is fundam fundamental to the way that Cape Cod not only lives year-round, but is going to live in the future, said Representative Susan Moran, Democrat from Falmouth. It's crucial for our climate goals, for our workforce needs, and for economic development that we provide safe, on-time, and dependable transportation for people to get to work, appointments, and school. Barnstable, the Cape's largest town, will receive over $1 million. Larger towns, such as Barnstable, which is slated to receive over $1 million, will be granted more funding based on the state formula. Smaller towns like Truro, which is receiving $106,301, will receive a smaller share. Mark Milne, finance director for the town of Barnstable, said the funds they received through the Fair Share Amendment is nearly 50% more than would normally be received from their annual Chapter 90 funds, a stream of yearly funding from the state for transportation networks. 
Chapter 90 funds have already been used for improvements to C Street, Main Street in Marston's Mills, and Main Street in Barnstable Village, Milne said. We're hopeful that this is a continuing funding program, and we expect it to occur every year until otherwise notified by the state, he said. This will be a nice nice boost for our public road infrastructure, which is one of the largest in the Commonwealth. And the picture that accompanies this story is a picture of traffic on a street. The caption reads, Yarmouth is slated to receive about $458,000 in state fair share money for transportation infrastructure. That money will help with the town's capital improvement plan for road and sidewalk maintenance, said Yarmouth Town Administrator Robert Rittenauer. An intersection along Route 28 in West Yarmouth is shown in August. And next we'll go to a story on the Cape and Islands page. The story is entitled, Will Cannabis Social Equity Trust Fund Money Come Soon? By Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The cannabis industry has been a boon to Massachusetts with adult-use marijuana retail sales in 2022 equaling $1.42 billion. Gross adult use sales from 2018 to the present is equal to $4.5 billion, according to a May 30th Cannabis Control Commission report. But the legalization of marijuana has left behind a large number of people suffering from an early time when the possession, consumption, and distribution of marijuana was illegal and carried penalties and jail time. Most of the people affected are people of color. A year-old advisory board wants the new Cannabis Social Equity Trust Fund, established in 2022, to help entrepreneurs in those communities get into the state's regulated marijuana industry. And sooner rather than later, said Mika Brown-Korea, a former cannabis banking regulatory specialist at Green Check Verified, a technology company that provides financial services for legal cannabis businesses. She serves on the state Cannabis Social Equity Fund Advisory Board. Cannabis prices have sunk, businesses have closed, and the money that had been available has dwindled, she said. Distributing the funds will help the cannabis industry and the state's economy. The gold rush has come and gone, Brown Korea said. There's just a lot of businesses that are on a wing and a prayer right now. The advisory board is meeting with the Executive Office of Economic Development on Friday 
to discuss the workings of the fund. What is the Cannabis Social Equity Trust Fund? The fund was established to encourage, quote, the full participation in the Commonwealth's regulated marijuana industry by entrepreneurs from communities that have been disproportionately harmed by marijuana prohibition and enforcement, end quote, according to the state website. The board, also established in 2022, was created to advise the Executive Office of Economic Development on administration of the fund. The fund could potentially funnel 15 to $20 million per year towards social equity businesses, according to Cannabis Control Commission Chairwoman Shannon O'Brien in an interview on Boston Public Radio. Brown Korea calls the fund, quote, an attempt to try to right wrongs and to balance the playing field so there isn't yet another industry that black and brown people find themselves shut out of, end quote. Black people more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession. Marijuana use is roughly equal among blacks and whites, yet blacks are 3.73 times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, according to the War on, Macro, excuse me, the War on Marijuana in Black and White, a 2013 pub- publication by the American Civil Liberties Union. A 2016 ACLU report found that higher arrest rates led to criminal records and negative repercussions. Arrests for even small amounts of cannabis have made it difficult for some individuals to find jobs, housing, and secure loans. In every state in the Union, black people were more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. In some states, they were up to six to ten times more likely to be arrested. In 31 states, racial disparities were larger in 2018 than they were in 2010. A 2017 study from Marijuana Business Daily found that 81% of marijuana business owners were white, while just 5.7% were Latino and 4.3% were black. Now that it's legal, those individuals most affected by marijuana laws are being excluded from economic opportunities, according to the Marijuana Business Daily. Arrest records and the federal prohibition against cannabis mean they have limited access to banking and no access to traditional loans and capital markets, according to Brown Korea. Massachusetts is trying to address the inequity by establishing the trust fund. The Executive Office of Economic Development 
and the advisory board have been meeting for a year to create the guidelines, requirements, selection process, and penalties for when such a fund will start dispersing money. Brown Korea hopes Friday's meeting will signal the start of the fund's distribution. Our next story on the Cape and Islands page is entitled, Two Kayakers Stranded on Toby Island in Bourne During Storm Rescued, by Zane Razak, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Two adult men who were kayaking off Bourne were rescued after becoming stranded on an island in Bourne during Sunday's winter storm, according to a fire official. Emergency crews were called to help the men around 5.30 p.m., according to Bourne Assistant Fire Chief David Polonzi. Neither person wore a life jacket, and one had overturned their kayak. Both were already out of the water and on Toby Island when first responders arrived. Bourne officials initially requested a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter to help with the rescue, but the fire department was able to launch an inflatable boat and reach the kayakers at 6.30 p.m. They were both brought back to shore within 10 minutes, Polanzi said. The Bourne Police, Massachusetts Environmental Police, and the Bourne Department of Natural Resources also responded. The two men were evaluated at the scene by medical personnel, but both declined to be brought to a hospital for treatment, said Polanzi. Use your personal flotation devices when using kayaks and watercrafts, and always consider the environment and conditions, said Polanzi. And there's a picture on the Cape and Islands page, which is entitled, The Picture of Health. The picture is of a building covered in scaffolding, and the caption reads, Workers build scaffolding up the side of the new Peter and Pamela Barbie patient tower at Cape Cod Hospital as work continues on the building, which will house cancer, medical, surgical, and cardiology care when completed. And next we'll go to a front-page national news story, which is entitled, Much of the Nation Battered by Storms, Systems of Tornadoes, Snow Heads Northeast, by Christopher Can, Anthony Roblido, and Janine Santucci, USA Today. A blockbuster storm with heavy rain and powerful winds sparked tornadoes in Florida on Tuesday after roaring across the Midwest with blizzard conditions en route to the northeast as a second storm hit the northeast. The National Weather Service confirmed at least three tornadoes across the Florida panhandle 
where winds gusted as high as 106 miles per hour. A thunderstorm brought 70-mile-an-hour winds and baseball-sized hail to the southeast Alabama and southwest Georgia, according to the Weather Service. More than 170,000 utility customers in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida were without power at midday Tuesday, according to poweroutage.us. The storm knocked out power across the panhandle, including Tallahassee, the state capital. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis declared a state of emergency in 49 of the state's 67 counties. Barely a region in the country was untouched by wild weather Tuesday. Even Hawaii had a rare tornado warning. Schools and government buildings from Florida to Washington, D.C., either closed entirely or shut early. Early Tuesday, 900 flights across the country were delayed and over 110 canceled, with the worst impacts in Chicago, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Atlanta. Across the central U.S., the storm shut down major highways as it pummeled the region with whiteout conditions and packed roadways with snow. The Northeast and Mid-Atlantic braced for heavy rainfall, with one to three inches forecast for New England and over an inch in New York City, Washington, and Philadelphia. Much of the coast was under wind and flood advisories. With up to 22 inches of snow falling in New England over the weekend, authorities warned of the potential for widespread flooding. And blizzard warnings were issued across the Pacific Northwest and Idaho. In Mariana, Florida, Doris Leona Peacock, a retired nurse, was awakened by what sounded like shingles being ripped off of her house. A tornado had ripped through the Florida Panhandle City, leaving widespread damage in its wake. Luckily, no one in the house was hurt. I'm more than blessed, Peacock said. God spared me. And another front-page national news story related to the weather is entitled, Study, East Coast Sinking Faster Than We Thought, by Emily Koblenz, USA Today. New satellite images show the East Coast is sinking at a rate faster than what was first reported last year, according to a new study published in the journal PNAS Nexus. Back in September, a team of scientists out of Southern California found that the New York City metro area is sinking at an average 
of 0.06 inches annually, USA Today previously reported. That number is now 0.08 inches in some areas, according to the new study published January 2nd. The problem is not just that is not just that the land is sinking. The problem is that the hot spots of sinking land intersect directly with population and infrastructure hubs. According to lead author Leonard Ohanan, a graduate student working with associate professor Manukir Shirzai at Virginia Tech's Earth Observation and Innovation Lab. Ohenin, Scherzay, and colleagues at the lab measured, quote, vertical land motion rates, end quote, obtained from space-based radar satellites, quote, to evaluate the subsistence-hazard exposure to population assets, and infrastructure systems-slash-facilities, end quote, along the coast. The maps of the terrain are the first of their kind. The new research is extremely valuable, Patrick Barnard, a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey and a co-author of the study, said in a statement. This information is needed, he said. No one else is providing it. The hotspots of sinking land referenced by Ohenin include, quote, significant areas of critical infrastructure in New York, including JFK and LaGuardia airports and its runways, along with the railway systems, end quote, he said, adding that they're sinking by a rate of more than two millimeters a year. Even if that is just a few millimeters per year, you can potentially cause cracks along structures, Ohenin said. In New York, five million people and 1.8 million properties are at risk, according to the study. Satellite measurements from the study show that on top of the 29,000 square miles of the Atlantic coast, losing 2 millimeters, or 0.08 inches, a year, more than 1,400 square miles are losing more than 0.2 inches a year, with the sea level expected to rise 10 to 14 inches in the next three decades along the East Coast. This makes for what seems to be an inescapable situation. But... It's not just about sea levels, Ohenin said. You also have potential to disrupt the topography of the land, for example. So you have areas that can get full of flooding when it rains. 
The new study mentions some solutions, like the raising of levies, may not be possible because not all areas of land are sinking at the same rate. Through this study, we highlight that sinking of the land is not an intangible threat. Sherzay said, "It affects you and I and everyone. It may be gradual, but the impacts are real." And in our next front page national story, new in New Hampshire, election is not about the economy. Poll, democracy top issue for Democrats. Border for the GOP, by Susan Page, Sudiksha Kochi, and Savannah Kuchar, USA Today. For Democratic and independent voters in New Hampshire this year, the most important issue facing the United States isn't the economy, the sort of kitchen table quandaries that more often than not. Determine presidential elections. It's the future of democracy. A new USA Today slash Boston Globe slash Suffolk University poll two weeks before the Granite State's pivotal primary finds half of Democrats, or forty-nine percent, and nearly three in ten independents, twenty-nine percent. Rank that solemn and even philosophical issue, well above such concrete concerns as healthcare or crime, defying the conventional political wisdom of decades. It's the economy, stupid. The survey was taken among a series of stress tests for the nation's democratic institutions. Including a federal appeals court hearing set for Tuesday, to consider whether Donald Trump should be immune from criminal prosecution for actions he took while president. We're going to stop this story right now and go to the obituaries. We will continue this story at the conclusion of the obituaries. And now, in other local news, we will go to the obituaries. Julie Killian. Julie F. Killian, age fifty-four, of Mashpee, formerly of Marshfield and Quincy, passed away unexpectedly on January seventh, twenty twenty-four. Julie graduated from North Quincy High School and received her bachelor's from Springfield College. She worked as a physical education teacher for many years for Quincy and Marshfield Public Schools. A visitation will be held at the Chapman Funerals and Cremations, seventy-four Algonquin Avenue or Route One Fifty One. Mashpee, on Friday, January twelfth, twenty twenty-four, from nine thirty a.m. to ten thirty a.m. A funeral mass will follow at Christ the King Church, five Jobs Fishing Road, Mashpee, Massachusetts, 
at 11 a.m. Burial will be held at St. Mary's Cemetery in Quincy at a later date. For online guestbook and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Takako Bedard. Takako Shindo Bedard, age 96, of Pocasset, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully at her residence on December 24, 2023, surrounded by love. Takako was widowed by her loving husband, Elmer H. Bedard, with whom she shared 49 years of marriage. Takako was always eager to share her smile as well as a wide variety of talents with her friends at Cape Cod Senior Residences. When Takako moved there, she added so many more people to her incredible circle of friends. Everyone she ever met is blessed to have known her. A Celebration of Life will be held on Monday, January 15, 2024, 8 a.m. at Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home, 40 MacArthur Boulevard, Bourne, Massachusetts. Burial will follow at Massachusetts National Cemetery, Connery Avenue, in Bourne at 9 a.m., where she will be laid to rest with her loving husband, Elmer. In lieu of flowers, please donate in Takako's name to Continuous Continuum Hospice, Massachusetts, 21 Father DeVallis Boulevard, Suite 204, Fall River, Massachusetts, 02721. Janet A. Gagnon. Janet A. Gagnon Garreri, age 90, died peacefully after a long, fulfilled life. For 41 wonderful years, she was the beloved wife of the late Joseph W. Gagnon. Upon retirement, they settled in Yarmouthport, where Janet resided for 37 years. Janet was a graduate of Boston University and was proud to be a BU alum. She worked as secretary to the Commissioner of Veteran Services for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. She was an avid golfer and belonged to several country clubs for over 40 years. A diehard Boston Red Sox fan who rarely missed watching a game. Visitation will be held on Friday, January 12, 2023, from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. at Doan, Beale, and Ames, South Dennis. Funeral Mass will be held on Friday, January 12, 2023, at 11 a.m. at St. Pius X Parish, South Yarmouth. Burial services will be private. In lieu of flowers, any gestures of remembrance can be made to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, 
Post Office Box 849168, Boston, Massachusetts, 02284, or via the org slash gift. To share a memory or leave a condolence, please visit www.doenbealamesdennis.com. John Theodore Olson, Jr. John Theodore Olson, Jr. of Sarasota, Florida, devoted father of Ezra and Ashley Olson, died peacefully on January 1, 2024, at the age of 60, with the love of his life, Maria R. DeLuce of Hyannis, by his side. He graduated from Sandwich High School in 1981 and Worcester State College in 1987. Upon graduating, he moved to Florida to pursue his lifelong passion of working on cars. John will be remembered for his love of life, huge smile, and contagious laugh, but mostly for his love and dedication to his family and friends. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. And now we'll return to the story that we were reading prior to the obituaries. That story is entitled, In New Hampshire, Election is Not About the Economy. The survey was taken amid a series of stress tests for the nation's democratic institutions, including a federal appeals court hearing set for Tuesday to consider whether Donald Trump should be immune from criminal prosecution for actions he took while president. The Supreme Court has scheduled oral arguments in a few weeks in a case that considers whether Trump can be bumped off state ballots because of a constitutional ban on insurrectionists. On Monday, President Joe Biden delivered his second speech in four days on concerns about democracy and freedom, speaking at the historic Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, site of a mass shooting by a white nationalist in 2015. It's really all morphed into saving democracy, Christine Hayes, a nurse from Rochester, New York, said in a follow-up interview after being called in the survey. An independent, she plans to vote for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in the Republican primary and then President Joe Biden in the general election. Overall, from a list of nine issues, democracy was chosen by 30% as the most important, followed by immigration by 24%, and the economy by 17%. No other issue broke into double digits. The poll of 1,000 likely primary voters 
taken by landline and cell phone Wednesday through Sunday, has a margin of error of 3.1 percentage points. In a hypothetical general election matchup, Biden led Trump by 42% to 34%, with independent candidate Robert Kennedy Jr. at 8%. New Hampshire isn't a particularly representative state with an overwhelmingly white population and politics that leans libertarian but it is a place where residents already have been paying close attention to the presidential campaign and its candidates, with views that could prove to be a harbinger for the rest of the country. Their focus on such a fundamental precept on the survival of the American experiment underscores how high the stakes of this election seem to be for many of its citizens. In GOP, it's all about the border. New Hampshire Republicans also have a dominant issue that isn't the economy, immigration and border security. A 51% majority of likely GOP voters call immigration the nation's most important issue followed by 23% who cite the economy and 11% democracy. Nearly half of those surveyed, or 47%, call the U.S. border, quote, an emergency situation, end quote, and an additional 32% say it is, quote, a major problem, end quote. That's notable in a state just south of Canada. The northern border has been considerably less disrupted by a flood of migrants than the southern one along Mexico. While most dismiss alarm about the Canadian border, 41% say they are not at all concerned, and an additional 17% not very concerned. Some worry that problems loom ahead. I feel Canada is probably going to be starting to see, you know, the immigration, the illegal immigrants cross their borders this way, said Iris Buzzell, age 53, a Republican from Concord, who works as a health care professional and is supporting Trump. She said migrants are already camping in the New Hampshire woods. It's horrible, the damage that they're doing to wildlife, the damage that they're doing to our clean water, she said. The crime rate is going up. We need to do something. Concern about immigration on the southern border is fueling criticism of Biden not only among Republicans, but also among some Democrats and independents. On a list of eight areas of presidential action, 
Biden's handling of the southern border is the most corrosive, prompting 51% of those surveyed to be less likely to support him and just 10% more likely to support him. Biden's best issue, abortion access. While his handling of immigration is costing Biden support, his backing of abortion rights is bolstering him the most. By 2 to 1, or 48% to 25%, those surveyed say Biden's stance on abortion makes them more likely, not less likely, to support him. Among independents, the swing voters who often determine elections, that divide is 52% to 20%. For many, abortion is a voting issue. Nearly one in four, or 23%, say their opposition to the Supreme Court decision overturning Road v. Wade, which recognized access to abortion as a constitutionally protected right, was, quote, the main factor, end quote, motivating their vote in 2024. Another 32% say it is among the issues affecting their vote, though not the only one. In contrast, just 16% say their support for the court's decision is a factor in their vote. Our next national news story today is entitled Donor Blood at Dangerously Low Level. Changes Since Pandemic Brought New Challenges by Ken Altucker, USA Today. The American Red Cross announced Monday the organization faces a blood shortage so severe that it cannot provide enough blood to some hospitals that need it for patients. The Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit, which collects and distributes about 40% of the nation's blood donations, say the emergency shortage means that some patients may get less blood than they need or hospitals may struggle to find suitable matches for patients with rarer blood types. In more extreme situations, said Eric Gary, executive medical director for the American Red Cross, shortages may result in cancellation of surgeries, including heart surgeries, when hospitals and doctors don't believe they have enough blood to safely operate. This isn't the first time the Red Cross has called on the public to replenish ebbing blood donations to head off shortages. Last summer, the Red Cross warned that blood supplies were critically low when storms and vacation travel disrupted normal collections. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the Red Cross said the shortage of donations had reached a crisis. 
Other blood donation organizations also report inventories are running low, but they stopped short of calling the situation an emergency. The organizations say this is a more challenging era for collecting blood due to changes since the pandemic. Employer-based blood drives are becoming a less robust source of blood donations as more Americans work from home. And fewer high schools and colleges are holding blood drives for eligible students, experts say. The pandemic has really taken a toll on our blood donations, said Christine Foran, director at New York City, excuse me, at New York Blood Center, which supplies hospitals in New York City and surrounding communities. Society has changed. The Red Cross describes the shortage as an emergency because it has the potential to disrupt care, officials said. Emergency means that hospitals are requesting blood from the American Red Cross, Gary said, and we don't have enough blood to meet their patients' needs. The Red Cross has about 300,000 fewer donors than it did in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic, Gary said. The organization's donations are at their lowest levels in 20 years and have become especially strained in the new year. Red Cross and other blood collection centers typically see blood inventories shrink in January. Donors are often busy during the holidays and may have little extra time to donate. And respiratory viruses, such as the flu and COVID-19, ramp up during the winter, keeping some donors home while they recover. Red Cross said it's had about 7,000 fewer blood units than needed in the past couple of weeks. That shortage means hospitals must rely on their own blood banks to fill that gap. Hospitals will need more blood throughout the month and supplies will be stressed because of the winter lull in donations, Red Cross officials said. America's Blood Center is a nonprofit representing more than 600 independent sites that handle up to 60% of the nation's blood donations. Kate Fry, CEO of America's Blood Centers, acknowledged blood inventories are not at levels we'd like to see. The Washington, D.C.-based organization said about one in three collection sites have less than a two-day supply of blood. Just 7% of centers have enough blood to meet normal medical demands. These centers have at least a three-day supply of blood products.
it typically takes 24 to 36 hours to test and process a new blood donation to make sure it's ready for a hospital to use, Fry said. That's why donation centers typically like to have enough blood on hand for at least three days of what a hospital might need for emergency care and scheduled operations. Anything less is cutting it close for doctors and patients. Still, Fry said blood collection centers for decades have anticipated a supply crunch during January, designated in 1970 as National Blood Donor Month. It's the longer-term challenges that have flummoxed blood donation organizations. She said about 3% of eligible people donate blood each year, even though studies show 62% of the population is eligible. Donations from people under the age of 50 are particularly low. Corporate blood drives provided up to 30% of donations for the America's blood center collection sites before the COVID-19 pandemic. But those job-based blood drives have slowed because so many companies allow remote work, Fry said. It's really hurting blood donation, Fry said. Blood drives at high schools and colleges that attract teen and young adult donors have generated 20 to 30 percent of donations, she said. While these school drives slowed when the pandemic lockdowns kept students at home, Fry said they are starting to rebound. Foreign of New York Blood Center said while high school donations are on the upswing, they are still not to the levels before 2020. The New York Center could rely on about 75,000 blood units from high school students before the pandemic. School collections are about half of that amount now, Foreign said. Supplies of different types of blood, A, B, O, and AB, vary by region of the country. Foreign said her group has shortages of B-negative and O-negative, which is known as the universal blood type and the most commonly transfused when a patient's blood type is unknown. Just 7% of the population has O-negative blood. The Red Cross's Geary said nearly every hospital needs type O blood and platelets. The emergency announcement is, in part, a plea for the public to step up and donate. One of the main hopes we have from this public outreach is to be able to increase our inventory of Group O red cells and platelets, Gary said. Eligible donors can contact these organizations. Association 
for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies, www.wheretodonateblood.org, 301-907-6977. America's Blood Centers, www.americasblood.org, or call 202 202- Three nine three five seven two five. American Red Cross, www.redcrossblood.org, or call one eight hundred seven three three two seven six seven. This has been Carolyn, reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, January 10th. I hope you all have a wonderful day.